a recapitulation of our themes, especially the last half of the Metta Sutta. Some of the most sublime, maybe just the most sublime words ever spoken on the planet. <laughs> so you won't mind if I repeat them. <laughs> Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to wrong views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So, 5th century BC, 2,500 years ago, absolutely as radical as it gets. We have not caught up to this. There are people who advocate universal goodwill for humans. There are people who are actually compassionate to animals. But this kind of radical vision and commitment to non-harm and 100% investment in that non-harmful, non-ill will and pure positive goodwill 100% commitment to it. So even unto, not for the sake of one's life, not as an expedient does one give it up. That's a radical commitment. And he's speaking to monks in the forest who are in fact vulnerable to everything. They live in accordance with this. They have no weapons, no defense. The only defense is loving kindness. Can you live like that? Can you step out the door with your only defense mechanism as loving kindness? Now that, that takes some retraining of the whole system. Your whole system is inherited and culturally conditioned and very, very few people could ever even think of this as an idea to begin with, let alone live like that. But the Buddha says there is no downside to this. You're never going to regret this. You're never going to say, I wish I was angrier. <laughs> I wish I hated more. <laughs> no. This is something that needs sorting out, and it's, it's actually a logical proposition that if you develop and cultivate this feeling of loving-kindness, there is no possible downside, and it has nothing to do with anybody else's behavior towards you or towards anybody else, neither for the sake of oneself or for another does one swing into the negative, aversive emotions. And at first this sounds impractical, but it's not impractical. Uh, most uh, People who are defensive, angry, critical, 
don't necessarily escape with fewer wounds than people who are pacifistic and have goodwill. One can live a long and uh, peaceful life without any resorting to any kind of violence. And there are many people in the history who have. And it's possible sometimes, of course, to defend your life with violence and so forth. But uh, it's uh, equally possible to lose your life by engaging in that. So we'll, uh, there is no practical downside to this. This is not an impractical kind of attitude. Even in the time of the Buddha, uh, there's a time of incredible levels of violence. Uh, the wars were fought with, with swords and spears and war elephants. And in small villages, sometimes the murder rate can be very high. However, the monks entered into this and they committed to this and they wandered all over India and then eventually all over the world living like this. Now, from time to time, they, they are uh, wiped out, but 2,500 years later, all of the empires that protected themselves with arms are gone. No empire has lasted more than about 700 years. The Sangha, having committed absolutely to peace, is still here. And from the Buddha's uh, predictions, it will be here for many, many millennia further. Eventually, it will pass away, and it will, it will pass away because the monks themselves can't maintain their virtue. They can't maintain loving-kindness so that the societies around them, as they decay, the people brought in from those societies to become monks also will, will decay in terms of their virtue and capacity to sustain themselves through loving kindness. And that's why things go downhill. But as long as the monks and nuns maintain this uh, positive loving kindness, then they will survive. They will be examples for the rest of the world. And any individuals who are members of the sasana, these uh, include the lay people. There are four orders in the sasana, the monks, the nuns, the lay women, the lay men. These are, make up the what we call the sasana, the, the whole order of the Buddhist teachings that travels through time uh, is carried by the Sangha and the lay people. And uh, this is a kind of a supernatural media. It is pervading the environment. So when he's asking you to radiate loving kindness out into the, into the universe, so going over that, some of the words again, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from all hatred and even the slightest ill will. So you get a absolutely Shakespearean kind of image. You can just see the, the northern lights dancing in the sky. It's, by the way, if you haven't seen the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights, uh, watch a YouTube video. 
uh, it's pretty incredible, the lights flashing into infinity. So this is a nice inspiration for the radiation of loving kindness. And so you can imagine that the production of your radiation is, is creating these these amazing green lights that that reach into the infinite. And so this is something that you need to develop in your imagination as well and not be too uh, techno-scientific about this, asking how does it work, what radiation, etc. Just uh, in the very least, you will have the experience of being enveloped by the other beings of the universe, and you will envelop them. So you lose this distinction between yourself and other. This is a famous, of course, experience, this oneness experience, which uh, comes across people every now and then. They blunder into a oneness experience, and they never they come out the other side of that, and they never forget it. By the way, so you shouldn't leave it as accidental or wait till you're on mushrooms or ayahuasca or something like that for the experience. You you don't need to do that. You are capable of doing that, but you need to commit without reservation, without skepticism to it and radiating out and you will be swept away. And what, uh, you'll be swept away into the sublime abiding. So this is another line that the Buddha says, this is said to be the sublime abiding. He also says that you should sustain this recollection, meaning that you can sustain this recollection. You can't, it's not something that just happened to you one day in the afternoon for a half an hour and then you were never the same afterwards, but couldn't quite get it back. No, Buddha is actually asking these monks to dwell in it. And you remember this is a discourse to monks. He's asking the monks to dwell in loving kindness uh, in all postures as well. Walking, standing, sitting, lying down. Even especially perhaps lying down before you go to sleep or resting. That's a beautiful time to do this. People say they don't have time to meditate, but you have time to lie down, don't you? <laughs> and when you lie down, fix your mind and your emotions on this. Give yourself some, some images and some words that help you produce this, this feeling and sustain it as long as you can. This is the different use of the mind. This is something that you will never be told. In the, and growing up in, ordinarily in this society, you'll never be told that. Never, never encouraged to sustain your mind on a single topic, emotional structure all day long, never. There's only discussions of ideas and various things. People talk about visions in life, you know, your, your aspirations in life, but that's something that sort of comes into your mind every now and then, every now and then, I think, yeah, I've got to save up for my retirement, you know, this kind of stuff. I've got to get a job that I can do, uh, or I want to uh, climb Everest one day. But this is something that is moment to moment held in the mind, in the emotional structure. And so you, you are to do this all day long without not just sitting still with your legs crossed. This is also um, 
something to consider when uh, you when we speak about these deep what's called samadhi experiences of jhana. Uh, and I have given a number of talks on this on jhana and and how to cultivate those things and focus on them. But here we have something interesting. The Buddha is talking about entering into this sublime abiding and which is very clearly indicated that one can attain jhana with loving kindness. One can attain the jhana with loving kindness. The deep absence of discursive activity so that your mind is free from the the endless inner chatter. The entire body is swept with pleasure and happiness, and the mind is full of joy and peace. And now we have this question, can this be done in any other posture except with your eyes closed, focused, and sitting down? Well, here you go, explicitly said, walking, standing, sitting, lying down. How deep you can go is just a matter of exploration. Even the commentaries discuss this kind of um, issue. Uh, can it be maintained at the deepest level when you're standing or walking, etc.? Well, apparently it can be attained and sustained at a very satisfactory level. The monks are being asked to remain in this throughout all of the different postures. And so this is something that you can, you can try, you can take up. This is something that you can, uh, people are shy to do this, but uh, they think, you know, I don't know how I'm going to interact with people because they expect me to kind of conform to their speech structures and so forth. But you, I think it's very entertaining for you and sublime as well for you to cultivate this and then just go for a walk out in the city. I walk by everybody on the sidewalk and just be truly and heartfelt, deeply radiating loving kindness for them. Now, you don't have to embrace everybody. <laughs> that won't do. They'll call the police. But every dog, every cat, every, every child, every man, every woman, every old person, every middle-aged person, the obnoxious ones, the beautiful ones, everybody. And then go into the stores. Please go into Walmart <laughs> and walk around. Radiate loving kindness to the people of Walmart. <laughs> And especially to the the cashiers and the checkout people and the greeter. Eh? No kind of comment, no negative comments on anybody. Uh, abandon all that. Be free. You're free to do this and nobody will know. Although they might, in some strange intuition, they might have a strange moment where they're they feel differently, but they won't know why. If your loving kindness is deep enough, it, it actually is kind of radiant and other people pick it up if they're sensitive to it. If they're insensitive, they won't. <laughs> but I want you to play with this. So this is uh, to be at play in the fields of the Buddha. There's nothing serious, somber, or uptight about any of this. It's loving kindness is also always playful. Look at mothers and their children. 
they play back and forth. They talk to each other. They touch each other. They look at each other. They teach each other. They're generous to each other. This is, this is the playfulness of loving kindness. Uh, the monks, their play is to walk through the village full of loving kindness for everybody. And the, the interplay is that people get to walk out of their houses and right over to a stranger and feed them. <laughs> and a very strange transaction. There's no charge for this, dear. <laughs> we're, we're non-economic actors here. We're simply freely engaging in this sublime play. And so this is absolutely beautiful. And if you don't do this, you'll miss the point. Really, we're inviting you to have some, what, not shallow fun, but the world, the shallow fun, you go and water ski or whatever, <laughs> play tennis, that's shallow, it's very trivial, <laughs> that's not fun. It's not fun. But if you do this, that's true, truly fun, it is uh, the Thai, what's the Thai word? Sunuk. <laughs> uh, there is a kind of a overlap, a recognition between the spiritual world and the world of uh, celebration and fun. So it's a constant celebration. This isn't a grim undertaking. To be a monk is not a grim undertaking. Well, it is. <laughs> uh, if you can't, if you don't have the skills, it is something like playing the piano when you don't have the skills. It's a grim undertaking. And many a child has gone up to grade four <laughs> and quit <laughs> uh, because it's been a terrible experience. But if you can get past that, if you have the skills, if you can play. So to, to play, and it, in other words, when you have a, a great, great uh, uh, musician come on stage in Carnegie Hall and play the great works, they're playing and playing at the highest level, aren't they? They call it playing, they play, and it's a transcendent experience. So just to the degree that you can master these skills and, uh, and you can perform in all kinds of circumstances. And monks have been in many different circumstances and, and also lay people who are virtuosos at this skill, the skill of profound friendliness. They play well, even in the midst of wars, even in the midst of emergencies, even in the midst of dying, they play well. They can perform. I actually, long when I was a long time ago, before I was a monk, I was a musician. And I did, I was a classical musician, and I did have to play in front of people. And one of the things you have to be... A, one of the advice my teacher gave me is because it's all right when you're playing in the practice room, but when you're playing in front of hundreds of people, can you still pull it off? And so one of, you, you have to test yourself. He said, one of the ways you test yourself is you get up at 2.30 in the morning while you're all groggy and play the whole concert when you're in a deficit state of mind. Can you pull it off then? Can you pull it off when you're not feeling so well? And he said to me that an amateur plays well on a on, in, in good circumstances. A professional plays well all the time under different circumstances. So this is, you, you are practicing. So this is 
what we call in Buddhism, our emphasis is not on devotion or anything like that. It's the emphasis on practicing. This is a practice, a skill. The Buddha endlessly uses the word kusala, the skills. You get the skills together and you become, you are performing this and you are playing this piece, this piece called loving kindness, the great masterpieces of the universe. Now learn to appreciate it. Can you appreciate this? Uh, actually, nobody who ever enters into it does not appreciate it. Nobody goes into loving kindness, comes out the other side, meh, it was, it was all right. No, no, it is intrinsically impossible not to appreciate. So if you went, if you thought you had loving kindness and you thought it was not a, much of an experience, you didn't have loving kindness. You didn't. So go back and you might've gone in the wrong door. You went into an empty theater next to the theater that was playing the actual movie. So, um, Try again, go back and do it. So by not holding to wrong views is a line here. And those who are familiar with the chanting books of um, the Ajahn Chah Western tradition and uh, etc., will think that I just made a mistake that I said, by not holding two wrong views. And I should have said, by not holding two fixed views, Ajahn Sona made a mistake. It's fixed views, not wrong views. But Ajahn Sona didn't make a mistake. He changed the word. <laughs> now, it's the only chanting book amongst the, uh, the connected monasteries that says, by not holding to wrong views instead of fixed views. I, uh, I changed that one word in our translation. And I think I can get away with it because it's really... Um, it doesn't explicitly say, uh, it, all it says is not holding to views, but quite often in the suttas, they explain the, the, the commentary explain that when they say this, they mean not holding to wrong views because there is this, this situation called right view. <laughs> And uh, one is to commit to this right view and to practice with this right view. Now, true that one, the Buddha is uh, saying that do not grasp at right view. Uh, don't, don't identify with it so that you take up a personality um, identification with the view. So he says, if somebody comes and criticizes me, the, the Buddha, or the teachings of the Buddha, how should you feel, monks? Should you feel resentful? You should feel the terrible, those terrible heretics. We must persecute them. <laughs> no. <laughs> he says, that, the whole teaching here is to liberate you from uh, an emotional gra grabbing at ideas. It's not an ideology. It's a liberation um, technique. And the technique is to free you from these things. However, I think that when chanting this, it is important to make it clear to people that it's not an abandoning of all views because there's another kind of philosophy at the time of the Buddha, which is that nobody knows anything. And the Buddha heavily criticized that view. Say, ah, 
I don't know anything, you don't know anything, nobody knows anything. There's this complete sort of um, uh, the inability to to uh, to have any real knowledge about anything. So the the Buddha actually a man came to the Buddha and once and said, uh, I hold that uh, that there are no, there there is no knowledge. Uh, and the Buddha said, Well, that's what you hold. See, that's that's your that's your you say that's your knowledge. You say that nothing can be known. That's you're saying you you know that nothing can be known. So this is this is should be rejected. It's not what the Buddha is, is saying. The view, the right view, is very highly encouraged. It's the beginning of the Eightfold Path, and you become you become right view. You are you understand right view. You are you have the right view, and then you're not detached from this or freed from this, the, all of the Buddhas and the Arahant disciples are all completely, uh, always maintain ethical behavior. They conform to the Vinaya. They don't transcend that. They don't let that go in any way. And so they're, they're, it's just a matter of trying to understand this. Now, obviously, we're getting to a very high place here where this is, again, the sutta is to the monks and it has brought them this loving kindness path, this path of loving kindness and having known the path where we started, knowing the path of peace has brought them to a transcendent level. And here the Buddha is saying, you by the path of this have come to the edge of Nibbana. You are now pure-hearted, no defilements in the heart through this process, this interaction of loving-kindness with the vision and understanding of right view has given you clarity of vision, perfect clarity of vision, knowledge, jnana, knowledge, vija, knowledge, vipassana, clarity of vision. And you are free from all sense desires. You are now transcend, have transcended the sensory addictions and you will not be born again into this world. So not to be born again into this world means that you are anagami or arahant. You will not be reborn. So this is an exalted state of, um, of enlightenment. And of course, the Buddha is always, he says, I never speak in praise of samsara. He gives a lot of advice about how to make samsara less painful. Not everybody is ready to head for the exit out of samsara, out of rebirth. But whatever degree the Buddha can give you symptomatic relief from suffering, he does. And loving kindness is one of those things that if you don't manage to get all the way with loving kindness to the state of, of liberation, it will still have immense repercussions in terms of reducing your suffering in, within this world of birth and death. But he's urging these monks, he's, he's seriously saying, your, your job, monks, is not, you're not just looking for benefits within samsara, you're looking for the exit. 
And this can lead you to that. This is a very good fuel for moving towards that. And so the Buddha leaves with that. So the Loving Kindness Sutta is perhaps the most profound set of verses ever uttered on the planet. The only competition would be the Eightfold Path. <laughs> Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. But as for addressing the emotional side of uh, the emotional dimension of life, which you, you must, there, there is no... Uh, sometimes people get the idea with, uh, with Buddhism that it's a kind of an just pure icy cold detachment things, but obviously not. The Buddha spent so much time talking about these sublime emotions and how you are in a very tender interaction with every living being, humans, animals, everybody. Even the monks are not uh, to uh, damage living plants or kill or damage living plants. How's that? <laughs> so uh, we're not in a kind of an icy aloofness. We're in a flowing, warm engagement. And no human can be okay without that. However, there is the air conditioning in this sublime vihara, this place, this dwelling, the loving kindness dwelling, the air conditioning is marvelous. The air is very fresh and cool at the same time that there's warmth and color. So you have, a, you have the activity of the heart uh, being fully skillful in interaction. And remember, one of the things I, I talked about before was that if your heart is in the right place, the speech is in the right place and the actions are in the right place. So loving kindness guides your speech, guides your actions, provides the words for you, provides the actions for you, provides the interactions for you. And then, but this vision, the reality of the nature, the transient nature, the problematic nature of, of existence is always fully clear and lucid behind that. So I leave the uh, Loving Kindness Sutta for now, and we will move on to one more sutta, which is extremely rich and full of good advice. <laughs> 